Please open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. It's been three or four weeks since we've last been here as we study a section comprising a chapter and a half of John. John 9, 1, all the way through 10, 21. We have a sign, a miracle, um, and then we have Jesus speaking. And in between, we have the interrogation of the man born blind. I'd like to begin our time by actually reading our text, John chapter 9, verse 1, all the way through 10, 21. It's been a while, and I think it's important to see the flow of the passage. So, John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one works. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought, they, brought, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we 
are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand that what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Lord God, how wondrous it is that you sent your son into this world. How wondrous it is that he is the good shepherd. He is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord God, as we study um, the Lord Jesus' interaction with the man born blind, 
Give us eyes to see the miracle of the new birth, of new sight. And Lord, grant this miracle where there is blindness. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So our passage falls really into two or three parts. And what we're studying this morning is is the pivot, is the hinge. Chapter 9 begins with Jesus and the disciples walking by. They occasion the event. They ask him, why is this man born blind? And we studied that in one week, the issue of why do bad things happen to some people? Why are some people born blind, broken? And Jesus indicates that even though biblically we know it can be because of the sin of a person that that these things happen, the, the man who is by the pool Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse happens. Not always is the case. Here, it was not a particular sin of the parents or particular sin of this man in utero, but rather that the works of God might be done. And Jesus prefaced this entire encounter with, he must do, we must be doing the works of him who sent me. So we're to understand that what follows is the very works of God. Jesus heals the man. It happens very quickly, and he sends him away to wash, and then we see the man, sort of like a pinball, get bounced around between a number of people. First, his friends and neighbors interrogate him. Then they take him to the Pharisees. They interrogate him. Then the Pharisees call for his parents. The parents throw him under the bus. He can answer for himself. He's of age. Then they ask him again. And then they cast him out. And throughout these four episodes, his faith grows. His conclusions, as he thinks through what's happened, solidify. Till finally, they are furious with him. Simultaneously, his interlocutors, the Pharisees, start with some confusion, some division, but his own growing faith solidifies them in their unbelief. They cast him out. Jesus, in our passage this morning, we're just looking at three verses, verses 35 to 38. Jesus finds the man and cares for him. Jesus finishes the miracle that he began at the start of the chapter. And then the rest of this narrative pivots on this. In fact, I was originally thinking about finishing chapter 9, and between it being a communion Sunday and there being so much here this morning, I I decided not to. But you can see how we go from our passage this morning, where Jesus finishes bringing this man to faith, and then pivots immediately. Verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see that those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees hear him say this, and they say, are you talking about us? And he says, oh, yes, I am. And he launches into the Good Shepherd discourse. So our passage this morning is the pivot of this section. And I hope you saw that in 1021, we have this, this bookend showing us we're dealing with a unit where the people reference the miracle. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And you can see in 1022, we're on a new time and a new place At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. We have another event. So we've got a chunk of text. So this morning, what we're going to look at is the miracle of spiritual sight. The miracle of spiritual sight. What we we learn from Jesus and what he says is that the, the physical healing of physical blindness is meant to picture and show us something about the spiritual miracle of healing spiritual blindness. I, I get that from verse 39 where Jesus speaks of blindness and sight clearly in spiritual categories. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's clear now we're talking about sight and blindness, 
Not in physical categories, but spiritual categories. That's, that's the warrant. I'm not just spiritualizing the miracle. The miracle is meant to be a signpost to point to a spiritual reality. And, and that's not a new concept. Turn all the way back to, uh, to John chapter 3. I think the miracle of spiritual sight is akin to, is another word picture for what John 3 calls being born again. Regeneration, the new birth. Or to use the imagery of 2 Corinthians 4, having a veil that is blinding you removed. Or having ears that hear. Or having a heart of stone taken and replaced with a heart of flesh. I think these are all biblical metaphors for the same thing. It's the, it's the consistent use of the language of, of, of spiritual sensory deprivation and unfeelingness. Eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, a heart of stone being, being dead and then being born. And in chapter 3, where Jesus is primarily using the metaphor of regeneration and being born again, we get, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is even in John 3, where he's talking about spiritual birth, is, is using categories of sight as well. So we're going to look at this and, and just focus on the miracle of this man. The miracle is primarily here. The, the miracle of sight is just to point to the greater miracle of spiritual sight being given. And we're going to consider what, what does it involve? What makes up this miracle so we can understand it? If you're a Christian here today, God has done this same miracle in your heart and to you. So, so pay attention and learn. This is what God has done for you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is what God must do to you. The miracle of spiritual sight. Point one, it begins with divine initiative. It begins with divine initiative. Jesus has dropped out of John chapter 9 since about the uh, 8th verse. They're talking about him, but he's not acting. And instead, the camera follows the man and the Pharisees questioning the man. They kick him out. They cast him out. And then Jesus shows up and he takes the initiative. Our text begins with Jesus heard, verse 35, they had cast him out and having found him said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus is taking the initiative. First point here, you must be born of the Spirit in order to see. You must be born of the Spirit in order to see. And, and here is the point that I just made a, a moment ago that what we're talking about here, the sights we're looking at, that this is going to picture is spiritual sight. That the miracle of, of going from being blind to seeing is equated in John 3 with the miracle of the new birth. And both of these are necessary things to see. And Jesus takes the initiative. What Jesus began in chapter 9, verse 5, he's now bringing to completion Understand, if Jesus didn't do this final step, we would have a man born blind who is now seeing going to hell. As much as he's shown himself well, as much as we've seen him against the backdrop of the Pharisees showing that he's dealing honestly with the data, he is not saved. He is not justified. He does not know everything he needs to know. It takes the Lord's initiative to complete what he starts. 
So Jesus heard the man had been cast out. And, and what I think is being set up here is this. Jesus allows this man to be mistreated. We already talked about how for the, for the glory of God, that the works of God might be accomplished, he was born blind. That it might please the living God that, that some people are born blind precisely so that he can be glorified. Precisely so that in his time, he can do good through it. Here, Jesus heals him and then allows him to be mistreated by the shepherds of Israel. That's for Jesus' purpose. Jesus allows the would-be shepherds of Israel to show their true colors. We get the contrast of Israel's shepherds. What do they do? They cast him out. What did Jesus say he would never do to anyone who comes to him? In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What's one of the differences between Israel's would-be shepherds and the good shepherd? He doesn't cast out those who come to him. Israel's would-be shepherds have shown their true colors. This is what's going to set up Jesus' anger, his rebuke, starting at the end of this chapter, going into chapter 10. But Jesus allowed this to happen. He, he hands this man over to Israel's would-be shepherds. We see what they do, and then the good shepherd finds him. Jesus heard the man had been cast out. Ezekiel 37, we'll look at this more next week, but Ezekiel 37 serves as a back, 37, 34 serves as a backdrop to this passage. And in it, the Lord's rebuke to the would-be shepherds of Israel is this, verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. We see that here. They just cast him out. I mean, cast out of the synagogue is to be cast out of the community life. Jewish first century Israel life centered around the synagogue and worship. There's, there was offerings and sacrifices and prayers and washings that, were, that take place throughout the week. He's excluded from all of this. He was excluded prior to his blindness. He was a beggar and a pariah. Now he's made whole, he can see, and he's re-excluded because he doesn't toe the line. He won't confess that Jesus is a sinner. He has the audacity to push back against the wicked ruling elite. Jesus sought and found this lost sheep. And again, we'll have more to say about this in the coming weeks, but notice the heart of the good shepherd. Even as he lets Israel's would-be shepherds have a swing at the ball, even as he lets them show what they do with this newly born sheep, Jesus will not leave him to their miscare. He finds him. He finds him. Jesus heard that cast him out, having found him, said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? So it begins with divine initiative. Jesus takes the initiative here. Just as Jesus took the initiative in this entire encounter, understand that this is not the story of the really nice blind man. He, he's, he acts admirably. He, he shows himself well, especially against the shepherds of Israel, but he, he doesn't initiate Jesus' interaction with him. The disciples do. And, and I think part of the point of this sign is his passivity in being healed. There are other miracles where they, they call out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. There are others where Jesus would appear to test the person. Do, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? Here, Jesus just makes some mud, puts it on his eyes, says, go and wash. And then Jesus drops out. No, the, the entire miracle from beginning to end highlights Jesus' initiative, his sovereignty. This man is acted upon in regaining his sight. 
And here Jesus finds him and again highlights his initiative. His initiative. Point two. It requires gospel truth. It requires gospel truth. As, as well as this man has shown himself, as open to truth as he seems to be, as honest as he is with the data, as much as he's pushing back against the wicked, wicked leaders, there's information he not yet needs. It's a mistake to think that just because someone has suffered, just because someone has been marginalized, just because someone has gone through great evil and hardship doesn't make them righteous. Oh, they're legitimate objects of compassion and pity and kindness. But this man is not yet know what he needs to know. This man is not yet worshiping his Messiah. He will be in a verse or two, but he t- lacks information. And Jesus gives them information. It requires a gospel truth. There is information he needs to know. So Jesus asks him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the question's not, uh, do you believe in him conceptually? Do you believe there is such a person as the Son of Man? It becomes clear with his response. Who is he? So we're not discussing whether or not he believes in this particular messianic figure. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I think by the man's response, by the tone of this entire discussion, it's clear. Jesus is referencing Daniel 7. The man understands this. The question is not, do you believe such a figure exists? But rather, do you know who he is? Do you believe in him? The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations, and it's, it's, it's clever. It's, it's the type of title that those who have eyes to see and ears to hear can pick up on, and yet it's not going to unnecessarily offend the blind and stubborn and unbelieving. Ezekiel is called Son of Man almost a hundred times in the book of Ezekiel. So it could be taken to mean simply prophet or even human mortal. In Daniel 7, however, there's a very, very special and significant person referred to as the Son of Man. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here's a son of man who comes to the ancient of days, to God we would know as the Father, and he is given a kingdom, and he is given majesty, and he is given a people and a nation. This is a great, great figure. And Jesus says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And his response, I think, highlights the work already at work in his heart and the key, dis- the key distinction between him and the Pharisees. He says, no, who is he? he? He acknowledges his ignorance. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's eager, he's open to believe where Jesus would point him, but he freely acknowledges he does not know. He freely acknowledges his ignorance. By contrast, the Pharisees are marked by their pride and what they claim they know. John 3, 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. John six forty two, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
John 7.27, we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. John 9.24, when they were interrogating the man born blind, we know that this man is a sinner. John 9.29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. It's hard to make an honest inquiry when you know what the answer is already, what you want it to be. They aren't evaluating Jesus honestly, and part of what trips them up are the things they're convinced they already know. This man freely acknowledges his ignorance. Good for him. He freely acknowledges his ignorance. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, there's a play on words going on here. In the Greek, the word translated sir here in verse 36 is the same word translated Lord in verse 38. And I think the ESV and most of our translations are absolutely right in translating it sir in verse 36 and Lord in verse 38. It can mean sir, mister, lord, master, kurios. And it's clear here, because of his ignorance, he's just referring to Jesus with a term of respect. It's not even clear to me that he knows he's talking to Jesus at this point. He might. He might not. Remember, he's never laid eyes on Jesus before. He doesn't see till he goes to the pool and washes. So he hasn't seen. He hasn't laid eyes on Jesus prior to this encounter. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus response is remarkable. Jesus plainly reveals his identity to him. This is now the second time in John's gospel he's done this. So often, Jesus is questioned, tell us plainly, who are you? Who are you? And yet Jesus will speak plainly. You remember the woman at the well? John 4. She says to him, um, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And here, with an honest question from somebody not trying to play games, Lord, who is he? Sir, who is he? You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus plainly reveals his identity to him. You have seen him, and it is he that is speaking to you. What's remarkable here, then, is in the first time in his life that he lays eyes on Jesus, he sees him not only as the man Jesus, but he sees him by the end of this passage for who he truly is. And this is in contrast to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. John six thirty six, You have seen me, he says to them, and yet you do not believe. So the contrast is, is a people who have seen Jesus repeatedly perform, doing miracles, doing signs. They don't believe this man. The first time he sees Jesus is when he sees him as Lord. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Point number two here. He has truly seen Jesus. There may even be, on Jesus' part, a double entendre. Um, you have seen him may refer to the fact that as he's putting things together, no, no, he, he must be a prophet. He's from God. God. God has to listen to him. He can't be a sinner. That he's already evidencing some spiritual insight, that the miracle of spiritual sight may already be happening to him. It's possible Jesus is insinuating that as well, which brings us to point three. Brings us to point three. The new birth Spiritual sight is evidenced by confessing Christ as 
Lord is evidenced by confessing Christ as Lord. Back, turn back to chapter 3 again. When Jesus talks about the, the new birth, he gives a helpful illustration. How do you know when someone is born again or being born again? How do you know when someone's eyes are being opened, someone's ears are being unstopped? How do you know when the veil is removed? John 3, 8, Jesus likens the new birth, which he's already likened to a seeing, to the wind. And again, there's another play on words in Greek because the, the word pneuma, we get pneumatic, uh, can mean breath, wind, spirit. So the wind blows, the spirit blows. There's, there's a play on words taking place in 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That being born of the Spirit is kind of like the wind blowing by. You feel it as it passes by on your cheek, but you can't predict where it's going. In other words, its effects as it passes by are what identifies it. You don't see it. Well, in a similar sense, the new birth, spiritual sight is seen. How do we know this man can see spiritually? It's precisely when he confesses Christ as Lord. That's when. Do I think the Spirit's been at work in his heart prior to now? I think very likely. But we know it. We know he can see. We know he has eyes to see. We know his spiritual blindness has been healed precisely when, in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. That's when we know he can see. Sure looks like his sight's coming into vision prior to this. It's evidenced by confessing Christ as Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. Now, this is the fundamental Christian confession. And here again, I think that the, the ESV is quite right in translating Kurios as Lord. Why? Because of what he does immediately afterwards. He worships him. You don't worship sirs. You worship a Lord. You worship a Lord. In Romans 10, you know this passage, um, we read, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This, this question, is Jesus Lord, is the fundamental and most important question you can answer for yourself. Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, and he identifies his new sight with his confession. He calls Jesus Lord. Point B, he believes that Jesus is the divine Son of Man. He believes that Jesus is the divine Son of Man. And, and let me just pause to highlight, this is the critical issue. What you believe about Jesus, who you believe he is, what you confess about him, that, that, that is the sole issue at matter in, in your eternal destiny. Who do you believe Jesus is? Jesus finds this man and asks him one question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He, he responds with ignorance. Who is he? You've seen him. You're talking to him. Lord, I believe. And he's going to drop out of this text after this because the work is done. He knows his Savior. He's right with God. He, he's confessing Christ. And then the camera's going to follow as the good shepherd turns and battles with the false shepherds. This is the, the, the fundamental issue. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say he is? This man confesses Christ as Lord. He believes that Jesus is the divine Son of Man. Why do I say divine? Well, I think Daniel 7 strongly hints at that. But what he does next makes it explicit. What he does next makes it explicit. So, so the, the miracle of sight begins with divine initiative. 
It requires gospel truth, is evidenced by confessing Christ as Lord. But finally, it results in genuine worship. It results in genuine worship. This is remarkable. We are presumably outdoors. Why? Because there are Pharisees nearby who hear this happening. So I think most likely when Jesus found him, we're outside someplace in some public area, a street, a road, who knows. But the setting is such that this conversation between Jesus and this man can be overheard and witnessed by the Pharisees. It It is no small thing to fall down and worship someone in the sight of Pharisees who seem quite willing to point the finger and claim and accuse someone of blasphemy. You don't worship anyone other than God. That, that's, that's all the way back to Deuteronomy, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Ten Commandments, you will not worship the created order. You don't worship people unless they're God. But he falls down and worships Jesus. He does it without a demand. He does it spontaneously. He does it voluntarily. So the three things from this. And we'll move on to our time of communion. Three things. First, saving faith is not merely intellectual. Saving faith is not merely intellectual. What do I mean? We've already argued this in John, that that what you believe is tied up with what you love. Remember in John 3, 19 to 21, it summarizes and explains why the world rejects Jesus, why some come to the light, why some hate it. John puts it in terms of love and hate. It's not simply facts that you confess and think are true. It's not simply, do you think this is true? This man's affections and his desires are changed. Once he learns the critical piece of information, without anyone prompting him, without any demand, he just starts worshiping, presumably for no other reason than he wants to. It pleases him to do so. John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why, why do the worldlings not come to the light? Because they hate it. What you believe and what you love are tied together. It's not enough to simply think certain facts are true, but how you feel about them matters. The new birth is evidenced by confessing Christ as Lord. Spiritual sight is evidenced by confessing Christ as Lord, but it it invariably produces worship. Worship's not a chore or a duty. It should be a delight. Worshiping God should be the culmination of your pleasure in Him. C.S. Lewis makes the point helpful because sometimes I'll talk to people and they struggle with why does God want worship? Why does He want me singing? Why does he want us gathering together? It should be the culmination of our pleasure in him. You ever watch a game, watch a movie, and it thrills you? What's the very next thing you want to do? You want to find someone else who's seen it. You want to talk to them about it. Why? Because discussing the great play, the, the, the amazing scene, whatever it is, the new song, discussing it with someone else who enjoys it is the culmination of the enjoyment. I know I'm itching to discuss something I've seen or read or listened to with someone else because it's not enough just for me to have seen it, but I want, I want it overflows. I'm, I'm ascribing worth to it, which, of course, is where the origin of worship comes from. A true seeing of Jesus Christ, to put it in John Piper's terms, necessarily involves a true savoring. 
Worship is not a duty. It needs to be a delight. It happens authentically. It happens spontaneously to this man. He, point B, unashamedly, unashamedly worships Jesus publicly. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. In Revelation chapter 22, John's getting a tour by an angel showing him things. And he's so overwhelmed by what he's shown that in 22 verse 8, I, John, the one who heard these things um, and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. He's so overwhelmed by what has been shown. This angel, this mighty being, and his message is, is so powerful, John falls down and worships him. And the angel says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. An angel tells John, you stop, stop that, stop that. God is jealous. He will not share his glory with another. To worship Jesus publicly, <laughs> that is a declaration of his deity. And that is a line you're not going to come back from if the Pharisees have seen you, which we know they've heard what's been going on. But he's unashamed. He's not embarrassed. He's not worried by what others will think. And point C, finally, this then, this, this result of this man born blind worshiping at the feet of Jesus in public, presumably on some street in Jerusalem, this then is the works of God that the Father seeks. This then is the works of God that the Father seeks. And what I'm doing is tying together two, two thoughts. Turn back to the beginning of chapter 9. Jesus introduced this by saying he was not born blind because of the sin of his mother or his father. Verse 3, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the conclusion that the father is seeking. Turn back to chapter 4. I'll remind you of the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. I think she's trying to dodge Jesus when she brings up the question of worship location, but I think it's significant for our study this morning. Verse 20, she asks Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus says, look, it's not going to be in Jerusalem in the temple. It's not going to be on Mount Samaria pretty soon. This man just got kicked out of the synagogue. He got excluded from the religious worship in Israel, right? No, he's not excluded from worship because he's worshiping the Messiah in the street. And Jesus told this one, pretty soon it's not going to matter whether you're in the temple. It's not going to matter if you're on Mount Samaria. The Father's looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. The religious leaders thought they could exclude this man from the community of worship. 
and our Lord shows otherwise. Because in the new covenant, it doesn't matter where we worship. What matters is that we worship. This man's having his own private worship service right there in a street with the Pharisees watching, and he doesn't mind. Because he knows the Lord. He's reconciled with the Lord. He, he has the piece of information he needs. Likewise, when we gather, we do so not because it's a duty that we're under, but it should be, ideally, because it's our joy and delight. Our joy and delight. So in the miracle of spiritual sight, which if you're a believer, God has done for you. It's not, this isn't the story of the really smart, really clever, really good blind man. This is the story of the good shepherd who first does a physical miracle to highlight a spiritual miracle. A man born blind physically is made to see physically so that we might see a man spiritually blind is brought to spiritual sight. We need the initiative of God in our hearts. We need the truth of the gospel. We evidence that miracle not by going to church, not by reading our Bibles, but by confessing Christ as Lord, believing in our hearts that he is Lord. And that miracle always and invariably produces worship in our hearts. The, the, the goal of evangelism, the goal of missions is worship. Ultimately, we're going to worship God in heaven. It's not some side matter. It is the end goal of God's plan of redemption. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then I'll invite the men forward for this morning's time of communion. Lord God, how good you are. How, how good is our shepherd that he seeks us out. You have taken the initiative. You have not left us where we are, but you have found us. You have spoken life and light into our hearts. You have removed the veil that blinds us from the glory of Christ. You have caused us to see the life that is light. We pray now that as we remember the sacrifice made on our behalf, we would do so in a way that honors Christ. We would do so in a worthy manner. We need your grace and your help to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.